Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Three Right Turns, a podcast your conservative friends and family tried to warn you about, but you just can't quit. I got a lot of positive feedback about the deep dive into the whole Iowa mess on the last podcast, and I really hope that means you all like deep dives in general, because this week we're doing a super deep dive into Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposal. Fun with numbers and political strategy. Uh, I'm actually as surprised as anybody to see the junior senator from Vermont in the poll position. I honestly did not see this coming. And we'll see how the next few weeks go in terms of the primaries. Uh, we've got South Carolina ahead, Super Tuesday. Uh, I understand a lot of my centrist and moderate friends might be afraid of Bernie, or nervous at any rate. Or maybe he's not your first choice. But maybe I can help with that. We'll see. But it's been a really exciting week. I talked with the Moving Forward podcast guys. Uh, Corey and Rio were nice enough to invite me on, and we got into it right away. If you don't know, Corey is a liberal and Rio is a conservative, uh, former Republican. I think he's either left the party or is in the progress of leaving. They're both really big Yang gangers, and I was expecting a lot of talk about UBI, but we actually just immediately got sidetracked and spent almost the whole time talking about public education. And anyway, I think if you've enjoyed my work on this pod, I think you're really going to dig the conversation we had over there. You can find it by searching for Moving Forward Podcast wherever you listen to such things. Or, of course, I'll include a link in the show notes uh, so you can listen to that. I'm looking forward to many more conversations with them, and I want to have them back on the show actually real soon to see what they have to say about uh, what we're doing here. Also, uh, we've been making a lot of connections behind the scene. We're going to be having a lot more interviews in the future. By the time you hear this, we'll probably have already recorded two more, and there are a few more lined up after that. So I think you're going to really enjoy these conversations. As always, if you have a podcast host, a blogger, a YouTuber, somebody on Twitch that you'd like to hear me chat up, uh, or you are that person yourself, please send me those suggestions to 3RT, the number 3RT at swizzbold.com. Or better yet, uh, talk me up to them. That's how I got on moving forward. A listener just like yourself put us in touch on Twitter, and it led to a really great podcast. Finally, I just want to remind all of our Patreon folks that the next Patreon-only live stream is this Thursday, April 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You've probably already gotten a link to participate in if you're at the Tiger or higher Patreon level. All new subscribers should be getting their Reddit flare. Uh, it's too late to participate by asking a question or suggesting a topic for this upcoming live stream, but you can still watch it live by signing up today, patreon.com slash swizzbold, and you'll be ready to go for next month's stream too. We appreciate your support in advance. Okay, Bernie skepticism. He's the radical old guy with the bird nest hair and the ill-fitting suits that's always bellowing about billionaires and Wall Street and fat cats of all stripes. People say he's a socialist. People say he's a fucking commie. That he commands a horde of assholes that he unleashes on social media to hound people that disagree with him into submission. I heard somebody on a podcast the other day say he's leading a modern Kimmer Rouge. Kimmer Rouge? Kimmer Rouge? I'm, I'm not really sure. Which I guess makes Bernie Pol Pot. I mean, yikes. That sounds pretty, pretty bad. And look... I understand why Bernie can make people nervous, and I totally understand the frustration of dealing with like a Bernie bro type dick in your Twitter timelines, maybe dozens of them, maybe hundreds. And he really seems like he intends to make swift sweeping changes to a lot of important parts of the American economy, especially the healthcare system, and I get why that makes people nervous. But part of our mission here at Three Right Turns is to reduce fear and misinformation, uh, increase understanding, especially amongst moderates and even conservatives. So let's dig into one of Bernie's signature policies, Medicare for All. This topic is actually courtesy of our listener, Georgios, who sent in the following to three right turns at swizzbold.com. I think you're doing an awesome job with three right turns, and I say that despite the fact that I disagree with something like 60% of your conclusions. Oof, those are rookie numbers. We're going to have to pump those up. But nevertheless, it's interesting to hear someone try to work out some important issues. Well, thank you, Georgios. To lay out my priors, I voted Democrat at the top of the ticket my entire life, and I find myself in an uncomfortable position of considering voting Republican this time around for a person who I consider to be one of the worst moral monsters to occupy high office in the U.S. if Sanders or Warren wins the nomination. I'm not here to bash all the ideas of the left, as I have a lot of areas of sympathy and agreement, at least 40% it sounds like. 
But my basic problem is that the left wants massive change, which requires a higher level of seriousness, evidence, and consideration. And I see little of that from the Bernie left. I don't care if Republican administrations are filled with mostly idiots, if they are just going to do kind of nothing. For example, Trump's wall is a terrible idea and is bad, but it's only a $5 billion bad idea and ultimately doesn't really matter. But universal health care is potentially ruinous if not done right. The Green New Deal, again, potentially ruinous if not done right. I favor the broad direction of some of these changes, but I want them managed by responsible people aware of the downsides and who are willing to proceed cautiously where possible. To be specific, universal health care. While I'm sympathetic to the basic thrust, I remain deeply unconvinced on one, if we can afford it. And he includes a link here uh, to a blog post from the Committee for Responsible Federal Budgets entitled, How Much Will Medicare for All Cost? Of course, I'll include this link in the show notes as well. Uh, but his takeaway from reading that, if I can summarize it, is that Bernie's plan will cost between one and 1.5 and 3.5 trillion a year, which you know, pretty pricey given that our stated annual tax receipts are about 3.5 trillion, and we're already running a deficit. He also wonders where are the price mechanisms that will discipline usage and create in- incentives for innovation. I can imagine plenty of hybrid systems that would accomplish this. But I see no attempt to deal with either of these from Bernie. Warren was at least honest enough to make a clear proposal, and she got savaged for it when people saw the price tag. Hmm. Bernie is just playing hide the ball, and he should not get credit for that. If he is responsible, why not say, hey, this is going to be expensive. Let's cut a little from here, such as Social Security or welfare, in order to do it. But he doesn't. All of this is why I would love to see a Klobuchar or Biden win or maybe even Buttigieg, who I think is more left than he gets credit for, but I trust his team more than Bernie's team. I'd expect them to support reasonable reforms to healthcare and to implement material changes that would get environmental policy moving in the right direction, but I don't know how to trust Warren or Sanders, and most importantly, their coalitions not to screw everything up. Well, I appreciate the email, Georgios, and there is a lot to unpack here, and I can answer it in a lot of different ways. I have intuitive arguments. These are arguments designed to help you kind of evaluate your gut feeling about these proposals, because I feel like it might be a little out of whack. I also have strategic explanations, because where you see a haphazard and irresponsible platform, I see political tactics. And of course, I have some empirical arguments, many of which came from a very recent study that was co-authored by professors from the Yale School of Public Health, the University of Florida, and the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Naturally, all these will be linked in the show notes. But before we begin, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with supporting any of the Democratic candidates. Hell, I'd hate to do it, but I'd certainly vote for Bloomberg if I had to over Trump, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, So that probably raised a few eyebrows. But yeah, support who you want to support, and if you prefer a more measured, cautious approach, there are merits to that. Absolutely. The question becomes, what do you do if someone in your eyes more radical, like a Sanders or a Warren, get the nomination? Do you stay home? Do you vote third party? Do you vote for Trump? I think any of these options are not in your best interest, to put it mildly. And I also think there's a lot of great reasons to support Medicare for all, even as espoused by Bernie Sanders. But let's see how persuasive I can be. Let's start with the intuitive arguments first. I'm going to be talking about Sanders' strategy, or how I see it, to outline the reasoning for why they're going with Medicare for All over some of the more, let's say, conservative plans that have been put forth. So these intuitive arguments. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, universal health care is something that literally all other developed countries have had and have had for several generations. Pick practically any country in Europe, look at their total health care spending, their health care outcomes, and their citizen satisfaction with the system, In every case you look at, you're going to find a system that spends less money, has better health outcomes, and their people are happier with their systems than anything that we have here in America. And if you look at the Wikipedia article, for example, on universal healthcare, they have this map of the globe that shows you all the countries that have it and all the ones that don't. And what jumps out at you just initially looking at the page is that literally the entire globe has universal healthcare except for the United States a handful of countries in Africa, a handful of countries in the Middle East, and a lot of Southeast Asia and Pacific Islands. Now, it's true that not every country has a plan as aggressive as Bernie's Medicare for All plan. And that's a point I think gets lost in a lot of these 
discussions. And it's not a small point, and it speaks a lot, I think, to Giorgio's concerns. There are many, many ways to provide universal health care coverage that's not Bernie's plan. Bernie's plan is what you call a single-payer system. That means the government is the sole provider of funding for health care. You have a single entity, the government, paying for all the health care of its citizens. Makes sense. Single-payer. Private insurance plans would no longer exist under this type of plan. It's true. That would be a massive change for the American health care system. It'd be a massive change. There'd be potentially millions of health insurance workers that would be out of a job. And many people like their plans and might see Medicare for All as a downgrade. Any change, if you're happy with what you have, is potentially scary. And nobody likes change just for change's sake. But single-payer is not the only way to go. Many countries, in fact most of them providing universal health care, have a mixed or blended system like Giorgio is suggesting there in his email. These systems often have what's called a public option. What this means is that there is a health care plan that the government provides that guarantees a basic level of care for everyone, funded by taxes. Private health insurance plans still exist, and they either supplement the government insurance or they supersede it or replace it. If you can afford private health care insurance, you might have less wait times to receive basic care. You might have access to better doctors and better facilities. You might get a private room in the hospital instead of sharing a room with another patient. Many countries also separate health and dental and vision coverage, which I don't understand why. It seems kind of stupid, but there you go. Uh, Canada, our neighbor to the north, is like that. And that's something they're currently debating as a country, how to expand coverage to include your teeth, whether they can afford it, how you can afford it, etc. Same old song and dance. But as a Canadian... You still have private insurance for getting your teeth cleaned or fillings or eyeglasses and exams or you pay out of your pocket. And there are many, many ways to mix and match private insurance and public options. You can have government-ran and owned hospitals versus privately owned uh, facilities that the government tightly regulates and sets price maximums and level of care minimums that they have to abide by. Currently, we're pretty far into the private sector of the spectrum on healthcare, and Bernie wants us to move way further over to public control of healthcare, further than many of these other countries that you know we we hold up as examples of successful universal healthcare. So a lot of people ask, quite reasonably, why don't we do something like have a public option? Why not let people who don't have insurance or struggle to afford insurance take that? And everybody's happy with their plan, keep their plans. Why do you want to risk upsetting people who are happy? And it's not an unfounded fear. I saw at least one poll this week that suggested something like 80% of people are happy with their quality of health care, and up to 69% of people are happy with the level of access they have to it. So why do we want to rock that seemingly stable boat? Well, here's where we're going to dip our toes a little bit into political strategy. Number one, let's talk about negotiation tactics. So when you negotiate, there's lots of different ways you can go about it. Uh, one example is playing hardball. So let's say uh, you're playing hardball and your opening offer is 100% of what you want, maybe even 25% more. Then when the other side sees it, they just go ape shit. And even if they drag you 50% towards their side, you're still getting 75% of the deal that you wanted, and they're stuck with a piddly 25%. Now, of course, the downside of this strategy is they could just be like, you know what, fuck off and leave you with nothing. Now, aside from that risk, in my opinion, it's also a pretty childish way to negotiate in general. A better way, again, in my opinion, is to give careful consideration to what the other side wants, what's important to them, where they might be willing to flex. Then you do the same kind of inventory on your own side and, and, and for what you want. And you look for ways that the other side can have some wins. The more important the thing is that you want uh, from their side, the more you're going to have to give to get them to budge off of it, and vice versa. And then you've got two types of general outcomes of this. One is that both sides walk away feeling they've maybe given a bit too much, and that's probably a sign of a good compromise. Or another way is that both sides walk away feeling like they won. Again, pretty good sign of a good compromise. But then comes along game theory. So game theory is a really complex topic that we can only have time to barely touch on, but I think almost everyone has at least hazy memories of the concept from the movie A Beautiful Mind, or maybe you've heard of The Prisoner's Dilemma. 
If not, The Prisoner's Dilemma is a basic game theory example that's essentially a scene right out of the wire. Imagine that the cops have two gangsters and they have them in isolated interrogation rooms where they can have zero interaction with each other. If both of them remain silent, the cops can only charge them with the crime that has a one-year sentence. If one of them remains silent, but the other cooperates with the cops, the cooperator goes away scot-free, and the one who remains silent will serve a three-year sentence. But if they both betray each other and cooperate with the cops, they both receive a two-year sentence. Now, the interesting part of this game is that the strategy that maximizes your individual success is betraying the other person, because you get off scot-free, and they get to sit in prison for three years. But the paradox is, if both prisoners pursue this individually rational, successful strategy, they'll both experience worse outcomes than if they both remained loyal, stayed silent, and pursued the collective strategy. Game theory is a mathematical study of the probability and success of various strategies in games like this. This example, as you can probably tell, is is pretty limited. The game's played once, and then it's over. But what if you played this over and over and over again in succession? Well, then you can start to build up a history of cooperation and betrayal, and those histories feed into the next levels of player interaction. What if you have one side that keeps coming to the table and they don't betray the other side? But the other side keeps betraying them. The other side gets better and better success, and they never experience a loss. Why would they ever change strategies? What would motivate the betrayer to stop betraying? To keep doubling down on the silent strategy while the other player constantly betrays you is to get into a never-ending cycle of absolute loss. They actually call this the sucker strategy. Another, better strategy is tit-for-tat, where you initially maintain loyalty to the other player until they betray you, and then you betray them right back. And there are, of course, tons of variations of this game, some that assume much more starting information about the other party. That changes the game. Some games, it can change the penalties and the rewards, so they're more or less. Some offer open-ended rewards where both players can achieve a win. Some games are zero-sum, which means if somebody wins and the other player's got to lose, some games include more than two players. Everything changes the mathematics behind what is considered rational behavior in those cases. So with this kind of bare introduction, if you look back at the past 30 years of Democrats negotiating with Republicans, which model does it most resemble? To me, it's the sucker version. The Democrats continue to attempt to reach across the aisle and find compromises. The Republicans take advantage of them, rinse and repeat. Go back a few episodes to our discussion of the Overton window. The Republicans continue to advocate for more and more extreme versions of their positions. The Democrats move towards the middle to find compromises. That shifts the Overton window to uh, of what is extreme more to the right, which allows Republicans to step Back right, rinse and repeat. It's a very extremely predictable and stable pattern at this point. Let's zoom in on example, uh, Obamacare. Now, Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, was modeled on a conservative health care plan passed back in 2006 in the state of Massachusetts and signed into law by one Mitt Romney. Many Republicans publicly praised this initiative, and Democrats thought, hey, Here's a health care reform plan that utilizes free markets, expands access to health care, gets more people covered, saves money. We can reach across the aisle to our friends, do something that everybody can feel good about. Let's do this as a first step towards universal coverage in America. But we all know what happened. Republicans cried communism and socialism. Obama could have rammed that bill through a democratically controlled House and a democratically controlled Senate because he had 60 votes in that Senate chamber early on in his first term. They could have passed it essentially by fiat. But Obama wanted to heal the divisions of this country. So he haggled and he debated and he cajoled for an unprecedented amount of time. All the while, the Republicans were complaining that he was ramming this process down the Americans' throats. Then tragedy struck. Ted Kennedy died. Republican senator replaced him. And now Obama was fucked. He had to make fatal compromises to the plan. States were able to elect to expand state level Medicare coverage. Many conservative states refused to do so, which messed up the funding. There's also supposed to be an affordable public option. We could have had a public option for health care back in 2008, but the public option was killed dead. Republicans then took over the House on a wave of conservative fury at Obama implementing communism in America. 
when in reality, what became known as Obamacare was a giant gift to the insurance industry, requiring Americans to purchase private insurance or pay a penalty. They spent the next several years trying and failing to repeal this, despite the fact that it's helped millions of more people get coverage, despite the fact that it disproportionately helped their constituents. Strategically, what would you call sitting back down at that table with the Affordable Care Act in tatters at this point? I think you call it the sucker strategy. And Bernie and his allies look at this and they say, you know what? Fuck that. We're not going to do it. We're going to propose a plan that we want, that we feel will permanently solve the issue of healthcare in America. That is, yes, maybe seen as a bit radical, but if it's popular and the people want it, then it puts Republicans in a real bind. And it gives Bernie lots of room to negotiate down to something that he finds palatable, each concession he can use as a cudgel to beat the Republicans with and frame them as holding what Americans want hostage and make them pay political prices for their obstruction. And if he gets something passed, it will be untouchable. Universal health care in any form is wildly popular across the globe. Obamacare, as it is, is very popular here in the United States. That's why the Republicans, for all their bluster and all their huffing and puffing and talk of repeal and replace, haven't been able to get it done. Now, do I personally like this style of negotiation? No. I've described it as childish. But it's also a rational decision based on the way Republicans have handled the notion of compromise over these past 30 years. That's also not the only reason the Bernie campaign really doesn't like to talk about numbers. You yourself uh, included an example of Elizabeth Warren trying to talk about numbers, and she got, in your words, killed for it. They've observed that Republicans don't sweat numbers. Voters don't seem to care, not in any kind of real sense. Every time they pass a tax cut, leading economists come out and condemn it. They talk their talk about trickle-down economics, they dodge questions in interviews, they invent fantasy numbers about how they'll pay for it using assumptions that even the government's own accounting office says are bogus and unlikely, but they don't care and they pass it. And they give away the U.S. Treasury disproportionately to the already wealthy and well-off because that's their money. They worked hard for it, you know? And when government agencies and systems start to collapse due to lack of funding and the economy softens and Democrats take office, they have nothing to work with. And then the cries of balancing the budget start up. So Bernie says, no, 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 no. Fuck that. Yeah, I've got numbers and they've got some numbers. But his intuitive case, as I already laid out, is very strong. Anyone starts talking about how are you going to afford that? Hey, he can come in with, you know, every other nation in the world has universal health care, including many countries poor and with less population. And you're saying the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world can't afford it? And it's working. He's leading in the polls with this. Why should he stop? Also, and I really got into this in my podcast appearance with the Moving Forward guys. I think you guys and gals should really check it out. There's a damn good reason to have a single-payer system. If you have two systems, one that's government-backed and one that people can pay more money for, which is going to be better? Well, it's obvious, the one that you pay more money for, right? Who's going to be in that plan? People who are well-off. Who's going to be in the government plan? Those that can't afford better. Now, what's wrong with that, you might ask? Well, let's game this out. The budget gets tight. Cuts have to be made. The public health plan gets worse. What if there are structural problems with the public plan? What incentive do the wealthy and the powerful have to help out and fix it? None. They have a great plan that's awesome. It sucks to be poor. Then people start saying, hey, look at this public plan. Cost a ton of money. I'm paying a ton of taxes for it. I don't even use it. It's another example of government bureaucracy and efficiency at work. You know what? We should defund it. Privatize it. And in a generation or two, we're back in the same place that we are right now. Now, Let's rewind this and imagine there's one and only one way to get healthcare in a country from the government. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. You go to the same hospitals, you have the same wait times, the same access to medicine. If there are excessive waits or poor facilities, guess who is now incentivized to help out in fixing them? The wealthy and powerful, because they want their families to have the best care they can get. And thus the system gets better and better over time instead of worse and worse. If everyone is in this one boat and it starts sinking, everyone's got to bail. Everyone's got to work together on fixing the problem to keep the boat floating. But if there's this other smaller boat that only wealthy people have access to and the big boat starts sinking, they just get the fuck off on the smaller boat and tisk tisk all the people sinking on the big one. You guys should really plan for this to happen. Should have should have saved some money for some boat repair work. 
You see, this is the problem with poor people. They always don't plan ahead. Now, you can tackle these problems in other ways, I'll admit. You can have a really strong floor to your health care that specifies minimums to still meet people's health care needs. You can have strict regulations and price controls. There's lots of different ways. But it seems logical to me that maybe the best way to ensure people have good access to health care over the course of time is to tie the fates of the poor and the powerless to the rich and the powerful. Whether we'll get that done or not, I don't know. But it's a good argument. So let's review. You have one intuitive argument that the whole world can do some version of this healthcare thing. They have been doing it for generations. They get better outcomes. They spend less money. Why not us? Why can we not afford it? Why won't we have better outcomes? It just doesn't make sense. People can easily grasp this point, and it's super easy to verify. Then you have a few strategic explanations for why this plan is more extreme than other alternatives. Namely, Republicans are all bad faith actors who are going to lie and cry communism and pay large think tanks to come up with numbers that make any proposed plan look bad. And I'll note gently, without any judgment, Georgios, I'm, I'm just noting the fact that you cited an analysis of a large, well-funded conservative think tank as the reason you're getting cold feet for voting for the Democrats this fall. Bernie says, I don't have to justify what we can do when the rest of the world already does it. Nobody pays attention to numbers anyway. It just gets you bogged down. It gets you killed. I'm not doing it. And it seems to be working well. And the strategic reasoning for advocating for single payer is also sound because it incentivizes the wealthy and powerful to work with the poor and middle class to fix any systemic problems with the single payer solution rather than just escaping through their privately funded plans and facilities and leaving us all to sink. So there's one more intuitive case, and then we're going to get on to the numbers. Uh, and to the Yale, Florida, Maryland reports, which are universities of higher education, not partisan think tanks. And they published their report in The Lancet, which, of course, is only one of the most respected peer-reviewed medical journals in the entire world. Not conservative think tanks, researchers, educators, medical experts. The Yale, Florida, Maryland report also makes this case, too. It's, it's what they lead off with. And here it is. We already have a real-world example of government-funded health care that is successful and is right here in America. It's Medicare. Medicare is a 54-year-old program that was conceived when it became clear that private insurance companies were refusing to offer coverage to older patients because the older you get, the likelihood that you'll need medical care increases until it's practically guaranteed. Unless you live a, a picture of health and you die in the middle of your sleep, you're going to need health care before you shuffle off the mortal coil. Old people are uninsurable. It's true. They're just too damn expensive for the free market to cover for all but the most wealthy, and their plans would be crazy expensive. Enter Medicare, a program that in these last 54 years has significantly and cost-effectively improved the health care outcomes for those of the 65 years and older crowd. And it's also wildly popular. The vast majority of Americans view this as an extremely important program that works very, very well. Is it perfect? No. Is it better than letting seniors die in the streets? Hell yes. Now, again, this is an intuitive argument because the one doesn't necessarily follow to others, but I think it is pretty easy to follow. If we have a program that covers only the people in this country that make use of healthcare services most frequently and did so cheaper and more effectively than what came before, how can anyone in good faith argue that extending this coverage to younger, healthier Americans is somehow going to cost more per capita than what we're already spending? So that's the Yale, Florida, Maryland opening argument. But then they bring out the big guns, facts, data, and logic. And I'm just going to go over some of the highlights. This is a 10-page report. Uh, two of those pages are bibliography. It doesn't take a long time to read. The study's purpose was to project both the economic and life-saving effects that they felt were likely to be generated by the Medicare for All Act relative to the current American system. One thing I really appreciate about this report is that it includes a tool they call the Single-Payer Healthcare Interactive Financing Tool. It even has a cool acronym, SHIFT. It analyzes factors including reducing reimbursement rates for hospitals, reducing reimbursement rates for physicians and to labs for clinical services, negotiation of drug prices, reduced overhead, improved fraud detection, and different ways to raise revenue based on payroll taxes. 
household income taxes, net worth taxes, and various other modifiers. And the cool thing is you can play with these numbers and see how it would impact the budget in real time. They have well thought out and thorough arguments for the default values that they put these settings, as well as what they consider the best and worst case scenarios. And if you follow that link, you'll find the tool and you can play around with your yourself. It's got sliders, it's got checkboxes, it's got things where you can put in percentages. It's, it's really cool. Go test various scenarios, knock yourself out. But here are their top three high level findings. One, Sanders Medicare for All plan would ensure the health care of all Americans and save more than 68,000 lives annually. Two, it would save 1.73 million life years every year compared to the status quo. And three, it would save the U.S. $458 billion annually. These findings suggest that Bernie's plan would save lives, would have people living longer lives, and save a half trillion dollars a year. So let's dig into these numbers. One thing that they assume is that you can apply the fees negotiated by Medicare across services for all individuals. And if you did so, hospital fees would be reduced by about 5.54% and clinical and other service fees by 7.38%, adding up to an annual savings of $100 billion. Now, this seems like a reasonable assumption to me. Medicaid rate reductions are far higher, but they're sticking with the more conservative Medicare rates that apply to senior citizens. One thing they point out is that we're a real mess when it comes to hospital and procedural costs in the United States because fees charged to private insurers are inconsistent and not in line with their worth. They cite several examples, and I'll quote here. The charges for an uncomplicated vaginal birth can be 10 times more expensive in some areas of California compared with others, and less than a third of this variation is attributable to location or the patient population. Moreover, hospital fees do not correlate with maternal or neonatal outcomes. The incongruity is even more pronounced when clinical outcomes and costs in the USA are compared with those in other countries. The average cost of giving birth in Spain is $2,333 compared with $14,910 in the United States. Yet the prevalence of neonatal mortality in the United States is double that of Spain. Also, appendectomy fees in the U.S. vary from $9,332 to $33,250 with an inverse correlation between cost and clinical outcomes. For instance, California has the highest median cost of appendectomies, but also has a higher rate of associated morbidity and preparation than any other state. So if you had trouble following that, in Spain, you can have a baby for one-seventh of the cost in America and yet twice as many babies die in the U.S. during childbirth. Having your appendix removed, and nobody has an appendectomy electively, right? This is an acute situation. You don't have time to call around and compare quotes. Your appendix is going to burst if you don't get that thing out right then and there. And the U.S. having appendectomy can cost between 9000 and 33000 the kicker is they found an inverse correlation between the cost and rates of morbidity. That means as you pay more, your likelihood of experiencing a perforated bowel, a serious infection, and even death increases. That's insane. Where are these market incentives? Why aren't they working? I talked on the Moving Forward podcast with their conservative commentator, Rio, who's afraid of single payer ruining competition and making health outcomes worse, like yourself. Same concerns as you, Georgios. But here in free market land, competition doesn't seem to be having any effect on making things better. And the report points out that 37 million Americans don't even have health insurance, and 41 million more have inadequate access to health care. This free market is delivering us worse outcomes with higher costs and covering far less people. Why isn't the market working? It's because healthcare doesn't work efficiently under a market system. How much is your life worth to you? How much is your child's worth? What would you pay to save those lives or reduce the suffering of those lives that matter most to you? Markets are fine for blue jeans, cars, petroleum, laptops, cameras, gold bullion, goods and services basically where the laws of supply and demand actually work, but it doesn't work for matters of life and death. A Medicare for All recognizes that. Everyone gets covered, the rates are standardized, healthcare outcomes measured, and we save, by their analysis, $100 billion annually, and you never have to decide whether it's worth it to check out that weird lump on your body or roll the dice and pray it's a benign cyst. Now let's talk overhead. The administrative overhead costs are 12.4% for private insurance companies, again, according to Yale, Florida, Maryland, while Medicare's admin costs are only 2.2%. 
If the Medicare overhead rates were applied to the entire system by consolidating all insurance schemes into the Medicare framework, we'd save $219 billion annually. And that's pretty conservative because, again, we're already covering the Americans who disproportionately make use of health care, the senior citizens. And you're going to have economies of scale, and you're scaling to people who are much cheaper to insure on average. We'd also save hundreds of millions by capping excessive healthcare company CEO payouts. If you look at the top CEO compensation of private insurance companies, and I have, and I want to include a link to this Axios spreadsheet that tracks these year by year, and they even link to the SEC filings for the relevant companies as proof for the numbers of where they're getting these, these pay, these compensation numbers for. Larry Merlo of CVS Health that owns Atna. $22 million a year. David Cordani of Cigna, $19 million. Dave Witcham, CEO of United Health, $18 million. Bruce Brassard of Humana made $16 million. Gail Bordreau of Anthem makes $15 million. Just a handful of the hundreds of executives in the pharmaceutical or healthcare industry that are rewarded lavishly despite the performance. In research, I found crazy examples. One of these guys lost $700 billion in a year, and he got paid. The guy got fired, still got paid. And you contrast that to the salary for the head of Bernie's single-payer system, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which is set to $210,000. Now, will this person be as good as Larry or the Daves or Bruce or Gail, these health insurance company CEOs? I honestly can't tell you that. But I will say this. We trust civil servants to keep our nation safe and to track our nuclear weapons. So it seems like we already put a good deal of trust in their hard work and ingenuity. But even if you disagree there, are these CEOs two orders of magnitude better at their job than the Secretary of Health and Human Services? Are they 100 times better? It seems hard to believe. Now let's talk drug pricing. The Yale, Florida, Maryland study states, in 2017, $469 billion was spent on pharmaceuticals in the United States fueled by prices that are higher than in any other country, which continue to increase more steeply than inflation. For example, a vial of insulin costs approximately $300 in the United States compared with only $30 in Canada. Now, I'm sure if you watch TV, you've heard this example of insulin. It's one of the most off-sided examples, and it hits close to home for me because I have two cousins that need insulin. One's a middle-aged dude like me whose lifestyle and eating habits probably did a lot to bring on his disease. So, you know, fair enough. Still sucks that he's spending hundreds of dollars instead of 30 to treat his disease, but my other cousin is a fit, healthy 20-year-old guy. Super smart, really good looking, just a really nice guy. And I don't know if he'll ever get a chance to move out of his parents' house because he has to spend 800 bucks a month on insulin, and he comes from a poor family in rural Ohio. And it sucks. He can't afford an insulin pump either, so it really impacts his life and lifestyle, and it sucks. He was born with this. His family's been struggling with this since he was a little boy. They didn't do anything wrong. The disease is an anchor around him and his family. So this study points out that the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA administration, has the capacity to negotiate prices that align with the therapeutic value of pharmaceutical drugs and could be a potential model for a federal single-payer healthcare system. This collective bargaining power results in pharmaceutical prices that are 40% lower in the VA system than those under Medicare, leading to an additional $180 billion in savings per year. Now, many conservatives, many moderates would jump in here and say, ah-ha-ha, ha, if you do that, you're going to stifle medical research and innovation. And I know that's another thing that you, Georgios, were concerned by. But the report states that there's been an observed long-term decline in medical research and scientific investment in the United States, while over the same period, there have been consistent and skyrocketing profit margins among companies in the pharmaceutical industry. Record profits, declining research and development. What is going on in these free markets? Well, I'll tell you. If companies have to choose between R&D and stockholder profits and executive compensation, they choose the profits and the compensation every time. Every time. Now, these above numbers are where most of the savings come from, but they, they cite a lot of soft savings uh, here in this report as well. They say, for example, doctors would be doing less paperwork, which helps avoid burnout, which lets them focus on actual caregiving. And there's a lot of studies that point to other uh, countries where their doctors are paid lower report a higher happiness and job satisfaction for that very reason. People will also be getting preventive care to avoid more expensive issues in the future, which makes sense. 
You get an annual checkup for a few hundred dollars to avoid a trip to the ER later and the thousands and thousands of dollars of acute care that results to say nothing about the increased quality of life under that system. They also say the plan enhances workplace productivity, example being absenteeism, disability, premature mortality from diseases like diabetes, which results in an annual productivity loss of over $74 billion across the United States. So that's the saving side of it, but you and I both know that saving alone isn't going to pay for this. So on the paying side, the report states, Employer contributions to the health insurance currently average $10,446 per employee and cover 71% of a household's premium. These employee premiums are equivalent to a 12.29% tax on payroll. Now, they point out that any payroll tax less than this 12.29% is actually going to save employers money. It's going to save them money from where they're at right now. Guess what? Bernie's plan calls for a 10% payroll tax. They continue... A 10% payroll tax would generate $436 billion annually while saving employers $100 billion. Even if this savings and revenue were still about $337 billion short, the report continues, the remaining $337 billion that would be required could be generated by a 5% tax on household income exceeding the standard deduction, which would yield $375 billion. The $38 billion surplus could provide a contribution towards transition costs or a fund to pay for unanticipated events. The replacement of premiums currently paid with a 5% tax would save households on average $2,369. So that's the bad news. Yes, your taxes go up, but you save money on premiums. Uh, the pop culture podcast network that I work for, baldmove.com, we cover five people with health, dental, and vision insurance, and it costs us about $2,500 per month. And we're pretty generous with ourselves, so the company pays about 2000 of that. But since the company is just two people, that's also pretty expensive to our pocketbooks. And at her last job, my wife paid about $800 out of pocket for coverage of our family. The company paid another $800 on the premium. Our combined household income is just over $100,000, and at the rate Bernie proposes, we'd trade $9,600 in premiums for about $5,000 in taxes. Now, it's not the whole picture because some of those premiums we get to write off on taxes, but that's still a huge savings for us. And it's going to be a huge savings for most middle class families. We save money and make sure every person in America has health care. Now, a lot of people worry about how we transition from private sector insurance to a totally public sector. Because there are some concerns here. For example, 936,000 administrative positions, that's people, and 746,600 people in the healthcare industry are estimated to become redundant. They're probably going to be out of a job. But the report points out that you could literally pay for all these people to have two years' severance of their entire salary by increasing the household income tax from 5 to 6% for the first few years before tapering it back down to 5%. You can just give them their salary for two years, and it's cheaper than maintaining the redundancy. And there's multiple ways to solve this problem. There's early retirement, there's retraining, there's re relocation expense reimbursement. But the report concludes with this call to action. As public support for healthcare reform mounts in the United States, legislators are poised to transform the healthcare system and save thousands of lives every year. Single-payer universal health care has the potential to improve the quality, the cost-effectiveness, and accessibility of medical services. Our projections indicate that implementing the Medicare for All Act specifically would generate net savings across a wide range of possible expenditures and financing options. Objections to the Medicare for All Act based on the expectation of rising costs are mistaken. Some Americans express concern about the federal government controlling this large sector of the economy or about violating capitalistic principles. However, the healthcare sector is already highly regulated in many aspects and deviates from capitalist ideals through opaque and often monopolistic pricing. Strong opposition should be expected from powerful vested interests, including the health insurance and pharmaceutical industries. Counterbalancing these concerns is the moral imperative to provide health care as a human right, not dependent on employment or affluence. The medical community should seize this opportunity to promote well-being, enhance prosperity, and establish a more equitable health care system for all Americans. Now, Georgios, that's just one report that came out. Uh, last week. And I, I've seen a few others over the last few months. So I guess the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, which numbers are we going to believe? 
Are you going to go with the conservative think tanks that say, geez, this is just too utopian. It's just too expensive. Or are you going to side with researchers at Yale, the University of Florida, the University of Maryland, that say it's reasonable and it's going to save money, that's a moral imperative? What does your intuition tell you about a wealthy nation of 330 million people being able to afford universal health care when far smaller, less prosperous nations across the globe can? Can we afford to lead a little bit on this issue, or must we constantly follow the lowest common denominator? Another question to ask yourself is, do you think Bernie is actually going to be able to pull off this complete transformation of the U.S. healthcare system without opposition in the current political climate, or is he going to have to make compromises to make it more fiscally appealing? Where are we in terms of the Overton window? What's the best way to halt it slide right and reverse public opinion? Are safe, centrist, conservative approaches the best way to go? Is it a sound negotiation strategy to enter this upcoming fight for health care against Republicans and powerful special interest groups by trying to make the plan more reasonable to them from the very beginning? What happened the last time that we did this? What would the effect on the Overton window be? But I got to say, it really blows my hair back to hear you say that you'd consider voting for Trump over any Democratic candidate because you're concerned with the numbers of their health care policy. I mean, if you prefer those approaches, by all means, advocate for it. Support them in the primaries. Talk with your friends and family. Donate to candidates. Call out and put pressure on your state and federal politicians. But to not vote for Sanders or Warren and to either abstain or otherwise throw your vote away on a guy who doesn't believe in climate change. And if you do believe in climate change, which seems likely since you're a long-term Democrat, another Trump victory is going to mean, among other things, for almost a decade, the U.S. will have sat back and done nothing on the international stage about one of the defining crises of our times. No leadership. No incentives for innovation. It'll mean supporting a guy who has refused to do anything for healthcare except kneecapping the Affordable Care Act and leaving it to die. Who acts recklessly on the international stage. Who gives away money we need for health and infrastructure to the wealthy. It will certainly mean giving him another seat on the Supreme Court, probably two, and dozens if not hundreds of circuit and district court nominees. And I mean, sure, Bernie might have said some kind things about Cuba and Russia 30 years ago, and maybe you have mixed feelings about that. But he's going to go up against a guy, if he wins the nomination, if, who sucks up to Putin, who looks the other way when Saudis murder a journalist that works for an American newspaper, who says the press is the enemy of the American people, and as you say, is just the worst sort of craven, immoral person on the purely personal level. I, I, just, I just don't get it, man. Now, me... I'm voting blue no matter who. Yes, even Bloomberg. Don't get me wrong, Bloomberg, I think, would be a disaster for U.S. politics for many, many, many reasons. But he differs in at least one key way from Mr. Trump in that he believes in climate science. And I think choosing the lesser of two evils is tough, it's distasteful, but it's a mandatory fact in our two-party political system. It just is. Unless... You want to hasten the handbaskets to sit into hell and hope for a revolution. I don't. I've said this many times. I just don't. To me, that's the only rational reason for sitting this election out or voting in a way that increases the odds of Trump winning. I don't want a revolution. A lot of people die in revolutions. A lot of good people, smart people, the weaker segments of society in terms of political power, in terms of economic power, women, children, minorities, the elderly, suffer disproportionately during revolutions. I don't want that. I certainly don't think we need it, and I don't want to hasten it if we can avoid it. I mean, in the few months I've been doing this, I've been trying to be straight with everybody. This is going to be a long, long fight. For most of us, it's going to last the rest of our lives. If Trump wins... That doesn't change. If Trump loses, it certainly doesn't change. Sure, a Democrat may win, but it's entirely possible that their four years in office are going to be mired in the same obstructionist, distraction, do-nothing mindset that paralyzed the Obama administration in its later years. And regardless of whether they're super progressive or middle-of-the-road centrist, they're going to be called commies, and they're going to be obstructed on every path. Winning in 2020, if we manage to do it, is just going to be the first victory in a decades-long process of taking the country back, fixing its systemic issues, persuading and educating our fellow citizens, and shoring up our institutions to better safeguard against people trying to wreck the system. 
anyway, I appreciate the question, Georgios, and I, I hope you don't feel like I uh, kind of jumped down your throat there. Uh, it's tough to respond to like a two-page email with an hour-long podcast and probably not have it feel like I'm just haranguing you. But I really appreciate you engaging. Uh, I appreciate you giving me a jumping off point to talk in depth about healthcare. And I hope some of this was enlightening for you and to the people listening. And by all means, we can absolutely do follow-ups. Giorgio's had some issues with the Green New Deal, and you know that's going to have to wait for a whole other podcast. Hey, maybe we'll get into that someday soon. And that's going to do it for this week on Three Right Turns. If you haven't registered to vote, it's still there's still time. There's still time to participate in a lot of the primaries. Certainly time to participate in the general. Go to vote411.org. Check your registration. Uh, see if you can register online. They'll have all the details for your individual state. You can check your registration instantly and get that taken care of. Please do so. Vote411.org. If you have feedback for me, Please send it to 3rightturns at swizzbold.com. That's 3RT at swizzbold.com. You can follow us on all the social medias at swizzbold. And if you've enjoyed this podcast or found it useful or informative, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Don't forget, we've got another Patreon live stream this Thursday, March 5th, coming up. Looking forward to seeing all the patrons there where we'll talk more about politics and culture. Next week, me and Cecily will be back with some more weird tricks for better, happier, more successful living on One Weird Trick. Thanks again for listening. Particular thanks goes out to our Fred-level patrons, Kira Gresho and Angela Morano. We have a few other Freds coming down the pipe, and you're going to get your shout-out starting next week on One Weird Trick. Thanks a bunch. We couldn't do it without you. See you back in two weeks. Check out my interview at the Moving Forward podcast. Try to avoid any and all prisoners' dilemmas you may find yourself game-theoried into and have a great week. Yeah.